Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. I'm Adam Proctor, I'm your host. This week's installment is called Class Struggle, Not Class Snuggle. That's a line from Jane McAlevey's new book, and she's our guest today. We're going to talk about how to build a fighting labor movement that can still win, despite all of the cynicism that surrounds labor unions today. Stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss it. So as I said, Jane McAlevey is my guest this week. Many of you will be familiar with Jane by now. She's done the podcast circuit over the past year. She has a couple books out and she has a really interesting perspective on how to build the labor movement and how to win strikes today against all odds. I wanted to have Jane on the show to talk about a slightly different kind of perspective. I've heard most of her interviews on all of the podcasts recently, and they've been really fantastic. I would encourage folks to go out and check those out. I know she's been on Behind the News. She's recently been on the Belabored podcast, uh, which is uh, hosted by Descent Magazine. And she was on Against the Grain with Sasha Lilly as well. Uh, That's on uh, Public Radio Out West. Those are all worthwhile interviews, and they cover different kinds of topics than what we talk about today. But, but, but this interview really builds on those in a really interesting and new sort of way. And I think we really blaze new ground here. I know Jane was happy with the interview afterwards, which always makes me smile because I take a lot of my lead about uh, what I know about labor strategy from her. So getting her approval in terms of breaking new ground in this interview is all I really needed to hear. So check it out, share it with your friends, grab a pen and paper. You're going to want to take notes because Jane McAlevey is one of the most insightful, one of the most brave, and one of the most novel organizers working in the field today. With that being said, having a lot of success with the show on Patreon. I'm really excited that people are enjoying the show. My last series with uh, Christian Parenti, Freddie DeBoer, and Angela Nagel was just hot fire. I got a lot of really excellent feedback from that. I think we really broke new ground and really added to the conversation about left strategy today, which is what this show is all about. And I'm really honored to have those guests on the show so we can begin to have that discussion together. For those of you who have already joined the Dead Pundit Society on Patreon.com, I just want to extend my infinite gratitude. I thank you all very much. If you haven't done so and you want to support the show and you want to keep this message going, I encourage you to check us out on patreon.com slash deadpundits. You can become a supporter of the show for $3 a month, $5 a month, or $8 a month if you're Captain Moneybags. Any way that you can support us, I really appreciate it. Even if it's just sharing us on Twitter, Facebook, or phoning up one of your friends and telling them that they really need to check this podcast out. But as some of you will already know, I have some exclusive content on my Patreon page for my subscribers already, and I plan on building to that library as time goes on. So if you donate to my Patreon, you're going to get a little gift gift on the side, uh, make it worth your while for your generous support. So thanks uh, for all of you who have already donated, and I hope that many of you uh, 
uh, will consider donating as well if you have the financial means to do so. I know I'd really appreciate it. I have some interesting plans coming up for the future uh, in terms of traveling to various places to meet and speak with some interesting people. And uh, with your support, I can do that. So thanks again to all my subscribers, uh, present and future. So I'm going to bring you my interview with Jane in just a moment. But first, here's a two-minute clip about the history of the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. Jane and I talk about reviving the proud, militant history of trade unionism in America. So I thought it would, would be a good you know, opportunity to bring to some of you, perhaps for the first time, a little history of the modern labor movement in the United States. Enjoy. Strike and live. Bread we must have. Remain and perish. A company that has so unmercifully cut our wages and finally has reduced us to starvation has lost all sympathy. In the summer of 1877, the Great Railroad Strike erupted spontaneously in West Virginia when workers on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad stopped work. The railroad workers' wages had been repeatedly slashed, and the strike spread quickly all along the line. The merchants and community at large all along the line of the road are on our side, and the working classes of every state in the Union are in our favor. 100,000 railroad workers went out on strike, soon followed by half a million other laborers who supported their cause. Violence erupted as local police and state militias were called to put down the strikes, but many people openly sympathized with the workers, including some of the very men sent to defeat them. Many of us have reason to know what long hours and low pay mean, and any movement that aims at one or the other will have our sympathy and support. We may be militiamen, but we are workmen first. When federal troops were called up, the first great nationwide strike in U.S. history was finally broken. But the power of collective action brought a glimmer of hope to the American working class, grown increasingly desperate under the yoke of corporate capitalism. Welcome back to the show, everybody. On the line with me today is Jane McAlevey. Jane is a union organizer extraordinaire. She's also the author of two books. Her first book is called Raising Expectations and Raising Hell. And her most latest book that we're going to talk about today is called No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. Jane is also something of a or union organizer for hire. She goes out and helps people win their strikes, which is incredible. And she is a fellow at Harvard right now. So, uh, yeah, got another Ivy Leaguer on the show. Jane, how are you? I'm really good. It's good to be on with you. Tell us a little bit about this fellowship at Harvard. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good labor liberals there, but I have to imagine maybe some of your rabble-rousing techniques have made them feel a little nervous at times. Uh, how's that gone for you? Well, I hope that they feel really good about it because um, I certainly have enjoyed uh, getting support from Harvard for the last two years uh, since I got my PhD, all of which has been a very 
the whole thing, you know, of getting the PhD has been a bit of an unusual experience for um, someone who's been in the field organizing for 30 years. But <laughs> so the That's fact right. that Harvard offered me the postdoc, it was really Lane Bernard, by the way, a Canadian. Um, you know, uh, she is she has been the head for many years of what's called the Labor and Work Life Program. It's an institute at the Harvard Law School. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can thank the Canadians indirectly, therefore, for my postdoc. Fantastic. Well, I can tell you Harvard is lucky to have you, uh, whether, some, whether some of the big wigs know it or not. So we'll get we'll get started. So the opening of your latest book, uh, as many folks will know, you have two books out now, very accomplished for a recent academic. Uh, your most recent book is called No Shortcuts. Uh, the subtitle is Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. And I recommend everybody's got to go out and run and grab that right now. So in the opening of that book, you cite Joseph Luters. Yeah. Luters writes, curiously, the labor movement is conventionally ignored by scholars of social movements. And Lord knows I've encountered the same ignorance or hostility to the labor movement inside my own experiences in academia. So this this really this opening really resonated with me. Why do you think these kinds of spaces ignore labor? You know, I I'd start by saying I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure, but I'm going to take and I do want to think more about this. But in that book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, that essentially was my PhD dissertation, right, mm-hmm. that I converted mm-hmm. into a book. So the, the process of converting it from dissertation into um, a more publicly accessible document uh, involved, for sure, cutting out like my 69-page lit review, right, the literature <laughs> review. Which, thank God. I would have enjoyed the hell out of that, but I'd be in the minority Oh, no, there. no, you wouldn't, because it, it reveals <laughs> that I spent 30 years in the field not reading books. But anyway, so my lit, but in my lit review... I I attempted to go after a little bit the origins of where I think the skew hit so badly. And here's what I think. And it's I'm I'm getting into dangerous territory until I really research it, but I may never. So let me just put it out there on your show. Mm -hmm. But I really I really think that the that the academy or academia, at least in the U.S., um, abandoned the working class uh, with the Port Huron statement. And when C. Wright Mills who really, we have a lot to thank C. Wright Mills for, mm-hmm. but I think the disservice, and I really want to be clear about that. Like I'm, I, I like reading Mills. I, th- I think, you know, the power elite was obviously a crucial moment in sort of U.S. politics and certainly academic politics. So I think that C. Wright Mills was real, obviously wicked smart and offered a lot up to the world. The problem was that when C. Wright Mills called for the abandonment of the trade unions, and then specifically, if you look at the Port Huron statement, and I went into this a little bit in the in the lit review and the dissertation, but if you if you really look at what C. Wright Mills said, the group of students he was influencing, both in the United States and in England, I'm not I can't speak to Canada, but he was definitely traveling a lot to England before he died, right? Very young age. Um, and if you look at the Port Huron statement, the the beginning of SDS. There, and if you really get into reading a lot of the statements around the Port Huron Statement and the beginning of Students for Democratic Society in the early 1960s in the United States, the sort of the sort of student-based movement that would eventually oppose the Vietnam War, um, I think it's all in there. They essentially say the trade unions have become complacent. They're not the organization that we hoped for. And this is coming from C. Wright Mills, who at that time is like the height of his career in academia, mm-hmm. saying... Uh, the students are the future and we should abandon the trade unions because they've essentially become the great men of power. Right. If you read through all his books at the time and I 
I so I put this out there a little bit with my dissertation committee, just to stick to academia for a second. And it was really interesting because I will tell you that I'm a very confident organizer, meaning put me in a crisis, put me with thousands of workers in a giant mess, send in the worst union buster in the world. I'm not freaking out. I'm going to wake up and do the work we have to do. But put me in a defense of a dissertation. I'm like a fish out of water. It's like not my normal environment, right? So (laughs) I backed off of the argument I was making a little bit because I was surrounded by some brilliant academics who, some of whom I think fully agreed and some of whom really didn't. So you know, I just, I've sort of left that debate, but the more I think about it and your question raises it and the looters question, which I get straight at, right? That's me speaking to the academic community, which is a newer community in my life. I mean, I'm trying to call out that as I hit the PhD at age 45, 46, that I started my PhD at age 46, that I had been working in the labor movement and in the environmental movement for decades. um, And one, you know, helped win and help design strategy on a hell of a lot of real campaigns in real life. And when I hit my first, and I hit a good program, right, at the CUNY uh, Graduate Center. And when I hit my program, um, I was was just astounded at the misunderstanding (laughs) of how real organizing works that was going on in among smart academics. So I can only imagine the clusterfuck going on inside your head because I mean I was <laughs> I was in the labor movement and and an organized socialist. I don't know maybe for five or six years before before going making my foray back into graduate education. And I got to tell you, it's it, talk about you know uh, there's just a serious translation issue <laughs> to put it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so for me, I mean, when I look at the origins of that, I do I do feel like like when I read three different books by C. Wright Mills, including The Men of Power, which was really the one that was a combination of reading his book, The Men of Power, and then reading the Port Huron Statement and a bunch of the statements made by basically young white men in SDS, right, right in the right. 60s in America, who thought that they were smarter than anybody. And that's a problem with the academy is that they teach <laughs> yeah. young, smart, white, straight men in the 1960s that they were smarter than everybody else. And it's not true. I hate to break it to you. It's just not true. Like the workers that I was just working with in the last year in a city of Philadelphia, the fifth largest city in the United States, um, are some of the smartest damn people I've ever worked with. Right. And they're, they're, you know, nurses and techs in a hospital trying to figure out how to save their patients. So I think that the, I feel like and I say in no shortcuts, I kind of pull it forward in chapter three in the book, the one called Class Snuggle versus Class Struggle. Best title for a chapter I've seen in some time, by the way. <laughs> I pulled that. Thank you. I, and actually, it's I should just say it's a joke. It's it's a bit of a I credit the union that trained me in union methods, 1199 New England, with yeah. that phrase, because um, when I was being trained as a younger organizer, we would say that, like, I, I don't want to name them because I love them, but I mean, they should be honored by it, but I don't want to just put it out there. But like, that was a regular the organizing team in the union at the time was called the new love team. I'm not kidding. We had a little name for ourselves. So um, don't ask all the origins of it. But anyway, on the new love team, we would routinely sitting in negotiations be like, what are we doing here? Are we having class snuggle or class struggle? Um, <laughs> that's why I named the chapter where I write about them. Uh, what what our internal joke as organizers was. Uh, right. We were clear that we were engaging in class struggle, not class snuggle. So, um, and, you know, fighting our way through strikes and whatnot for so teaching workers how they could win, which to me is the point of organizing. So um, at any rate, you know, I pull, I pull the looter's thread through a couple of times. And one of the times, or that thread about sort of like Saul Alinsky, 
uh, and college kids and SDS and essentially the 1960s abandonment um, of trade unions and the working class, ordinary people, I'm, that is a thread that I'm pulling through into what got us Donald Trump, right? And what got us into the mess that we're in right now, because for 45 years, I'm arguing, we essentially, when we decided that college students were smarter than the working class, and we, and if you read the Port Huron statement, I hate to say it, I'm sure someone's going to get some SES feedback from this, but if you read it, you know, it's an incredibly elite declaration from college students in elite schools. And right. yeah, I'm thankful that they were declaring you know, that they wanted to be the new revolutionaries. But uh, I think they missed a couple of chapters in whatever, everything like life. Like <laughs> it isn't a handful of smart people in universities who are going to, you know, build a working class that saves democracy. It's actually ordinary people who right. come to understand what's right and wrong pretty easily um, through a good union fight. Um, and that's what we need a lot more of. And that's what we walked away from. So that I think that's the thread from looters, uh, you know, my opening to the academy, I mean, that's my sort of opening line to the academy is like, yo, you know, all this social movement theory stuff that gets used to analyze the women's movement and the civil rights movement, especially, you know, the civil rights movement is like the hero of liberal academies, right? Oh, yes, like, it, yes. <laughs> and then you try and talk about a union and it's like top down, anti-democratic, stupid. And it's like, really? Which ones have you been studying? I just experienced this, an, a, a similar event where I won't name names uh, on air anyway. Uh, but yeah, and we're talking about the civil rights movement and Black Lives Matter. And I mean, not, not a single whisper about the labor movement or how or how the labor movement, the CIO and that type of thing sort of contributed to how the civil rights sort of movement uh, was born and how it won. Uh, yeah, we've right. forgotten about That's this right. stuff. And if you bring it up nowadays, you're just kind of seeing, particularly me, right? The, the white male Marxist uh, is always sort of like treated as this sort of outsider. Like, oh, why are you bringing, why are you bringing these outside debates in on this? They, they don't deserve to be here. It's, it's bizarre. Right. It's crazy. It's wild. And so it seems to me that you're pointing to the certain irony that, that the, the folks who are behind the Port, Port Huron statement are, and certainly C. Wright Mills, they're critiquing elites from an elite position. And they don't yeah. seem to have much of a reflexive uh, position ar around that. Well, I think that's right. And what they what what elites in the fifties and sixties share with the elites today, who are all over, by the way, liberal and progressive media, they're all over it today still. Mm -hmm. um, the, because most people, even behind the sort of formal, let's call it progressive media world, again, I'm speaking to the U.S. for sure right now, but um, many of whom are, you know, colleagues or friends of mine, but because most of them um, have never needed a union, uh, weren't a member of one, um, went straight through college, if not better, right, to become the editors and the whatnots of all the progressive media, there's actually very What's striking to me the most is it isn't just in the academy where there's a disconnect between how real organizing work happens on the ground and how we build power and how we win, but there's actually a disconnect with all of the progressive elite media too. And I think it is because um, it's a class of people who, while their politics are A-OK, -okay, you know, in terms of what they're calling for, their real world experience is different. And so the, the thing that I the point I try and make, and I and I made it in a piece I just wrote that's not out yet, is and I and I keep trying to make it is, um, people just don't get how unions work 
And so the example um, of like people running around and holding up a couple of specific U.S. unions as being like the progressive leaders of the U.S. movement can only come from a serious lack of understanding of how unions work. Um, and that disconnect just keeps hurting us. So I put the Joseph Luters comment there for a reason. Uh, and I'm glad, Adam, that you picked it up. But to me, it's a constant theme that unions in this, in the U.S., I should say, that unions in the U.S. that pretend to be on the left uh, are some of the most authoritarian, anti-democratic unions internally possible. But because they have, it reminds me of like the Mexican pre in the 1960s, like seriously, yeah, the, the yeah, Partido yeah. Revolutionario, right? And the main, what used to be kind of thought of as left-led party in Mexico. It was like, there was a period in Mexico where um, after the coup in Chile and like the Mexican pre would take in uh, revolutionary small over Latin America and let them live in Mexico. But the deal was they couldn't say a word about what was wrong with the Mexican democratic system, right? They That's couldn't right. talk about the free. That's right. So to me, it's like it led to people not understanding. So a lot of like when I used to live in Latin America, people would be like, oh, the pre, they're so good. And it'd be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, yeah, right, you know, right. really? Like maybe in 1940 they were, but not by the time I came along. So, you know, it, it's almost similar to me. Like, the pre in Mexico for a decade because they were accepting political refugees from all over the, the vicious, brutal civil wars going on in Latin America. People are like, hey, Mexico, the pre, they're cool. And it was like, are you kidding? So to me, it's almost the same thing. Like there are unions in the U.S. that take good positions on things like, oh, the Robin Hood tax or on climate change. And internally, they stink. So it's just because the left doesn't understand how unions work that people get away with this. It seems to me that, you know, you're speaking of the pre and you can think of this like, say, Nasserism in Egypt or, or whatever else. And certainly the U.S. Uh, trade union movement is that like th there's a set of contradictions that are really kind of operative and, and are being held together in a very fragile uh, way at, at the heart of at the, at the heart of these institutions that uh, require the um, the smashing of dissent. Right. And it, it, because if you interrogate them further, you, you see that they're, they're, they're really held together on, under a very thin, uh, a very thin rationale, I think, in terms of the top down bureaucratic way of operating. I think I think so. But I even think it goes deeper. I mean, I think that that's right, but I think it's even deeper. So here's an example. Um, you know, the SEIU. Um, a union I worked for for many years and had a great time generally, right? A couple of, <laughs> couple of issues in there, but mostly, right. you know, got a lot of good work done with lots of workers, uh, despite, you know, the top-down nature of the union. Um, and that's also important, right? That at the local level, you can actually do some really good work despite the top, depending on how crazy the top is, right? Oh, and by, yeah. 2008, yeah. by 2008 in SEIU, they made the top in total control. But until 2008's constitutional convention, we had local ability to do progressive work the way it should be done. So, but, but just in general, like, so right now, um, and because we're doing this podcast, I can explain it in slightly longer form than I might in a very short segment. Like, so people look at the fight for 15 and they're like, wow, isn't that so great? Uh, and I, you know, I'm known to have several criticisms of the program, but the one I want to focus on for just a minute is the real question is given the moment that we're in in history, um, and I mean for the last, you know, at least since the year 2000, the whole new millennium, I don't just mean Trump, like, 
given what's been happening in the U.S. and the need to actually build power, right? We need the working class needs power, not a cheap, shitty raise. We need power. So if you wake up in the morning and your goal is to be smart, which means you got to build working class power, then the strategic thing for that union, for SEIU to be doing, would have been for the last 10 years, if not more, would have been a serious, the, the kind of effort they're putting into like the fight for 15 is what they should have been doing in their own healthcare sector. Because healthcare is a strategic sector of the economy where workers actually can exercise power. So instead, the union abandoned essentially abandoned. There's been a big debate going on in the union. It's almost too much to even explain here because it's like, it's really behind, it's like in the weeds of the debate among a bunch of union people. But it's like, there's been a debate going on for like a decade in America about why did SEIU abandon what some of us were doing, which was really strategic organizing in the healthcare sector. Okay, let's think about that for a minute. Healthcare is a growing sector, not shrinking. As the baby boom continues, healthcare would continue to grow, not shrink. So as a Okay, it can't be done by robots, not yet. And it's going to take a while for a robot to replace a nurse. Okay, that's another point of strategy. Okay, let's go to another point of strategy. Um, You can't send it to China, not for a while. Okay, so if you start to think about what's a strategy that builds power, and then you hold that up against um, a campaign run by top-down staff and a giant PR firm based in New York City that's gotten millions of dollars to put out press releases saying that fast food workers are fighting back. And you you try and actually analyze what's real power building and what strategy versus what seems quick and easy. Uh, like that is the level of understanding that most of the progressive movement honestly doesn't have. And so people celebrate a campaign that's actually got no potential to build power. None. That's right. That's N-O-N-E. Right. And if you study your history, I'm, I'm looking into this right now in my own research. There's a, there was a similar parallel here in, um, in the 1940s and 50s in, in Operation Dixie. Folks who don't know, uh, this is the CIO's effort to sort of yeah. to go into the South. And, and one of the yeah. ways that they did this, they were going to hang their hat on this, this sort of uh, key movement. The signature movement was to um, organize the mills in, in, in North Carolina and places like that. So there were tons and tons of mills and mill workers and things like that. The problem is that these mills were very small. And there were many of them. And so there was it was very difficult. I mean, this is one interpretation, right? This, this, this is uh-huh. contested. But I think this one is correct. There were many, you know, hundreds and hundreds of mills with many, many workers. It was very difficult to organize across those workplaces. And as a strategic site of organizing this incredibly racist and segregationist South, it was just not very smart. And perhaps there were other sectors in the South that uh, were were more uh, strategic in that moment, which could have sort of raised up the potential for organizing the mills, like say later down the road. Okay, now that means you've done even more on Operation Dixie than I have. That's fascinating to me because if 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 what you're saying is right, and I have no reason to doubt it, because I've looked into Operation Dixie, Dixie a little bit, but mm-hmm. like I haven't gone into it at that level, and that's really interesting because if that's right, then I think that that makes sense. Like it was a bad strategic choice, and you can't you can't understand what's a good strategic choice and what's a bad strategic choice unless you first have a theory of power and mm-hmm. you understand power structure analysis, which mm-hmm. in the left, in the US, as I jokingly say in my new book, a little snarkily, I say, you know, nothing produces deer on the headlights 
moments in the U.S. in a progressive me meeting than when I say to people, what's your theory of power in this campaign? They just look <laughs> at you like, what was that word she mentioned? Theory of power? We scream louder. Yeah, and people have to yeah. listen to us when we yes. do that. I don't know. And we make better banners. You have to feel harder, Jane. Right. That's your problem. You're not feeling hard enough because if you feel hard enough, right. uh, you win. Right, right. <laughs> and or, or if my Twitter handle is perfect yes. Um, yes. and my hashtag is super excellent and funny, that's right. then we're going to win. That's that right. is really, that's part of the problem right now. Yeah, it absolutely is. So you're touching, I mean, and then so the problem there with going back to Operation Dixie, getting the, 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 the nerd uh, weeds here. Uh, yeah. The problem with Operation Dixie is that it's held as sort of like the, the failure of organizing the South uh, in, the, in yes. the sort of Jim Crow era. And it's, it's sort yes. of like... And, and a lot of people look to this, and I think in a very wrong-headed sort of way, and they say, see, they couldn't organize the South. They tried, right. and racism right. prevented them from doing so. And it's like, yeah. oh, no, because this was a terrible strategy. Uh, there are a lot of ways to sort of analyze why they did that, you know, why they didn't go somewhere else. One of the theories is that the mill sector was far more white than other sectors in the Deep South, which, oh, which had much more strategic advantage. And so, you know, perhaps racism did play a part, but not the way in which that it's sort of historically canonized. You know, to, I think that I think that's super important. So I hope you're going to write more about this because I actually do think it really. I think that these. I mean, I'm part of what. I'm, Part of what you're going to, and we can go, cut right to the to the South for a minute or stay on the South, like um, the chapter I wrote on the Smithfield Foods yes, fight yes, yes. in the new book, which I, for whatever it's worth, most people say it's their favorite chapter. I, I don't, you know, I've, I, I'm, when I write something, I it's like how I interpret it becomes this, like through other people. So people mm -hmm. like that chapter. But what's really interesting, staying right on your point and right on this point we're making about strategy and power versus feel good shit is that um, the w one book review that recently came out that I, I, I literally can't stand essentially says, and I, you know, I don't mind, I don't mind criticism. I, in fact, I love good criticism, but it was like the author missed the whole point of the book. So he says, um, Smithfield, the problem with Jane McAlevey holding up the Smithfield foods fight is that it took 15 years to win. And the exact, it's like as if they didn't read the chapter, because the exact <laughs> point I'm making in that chapter is that it only took us two and a half years to win when the person leading the campaign actually had a winning strategy. And for the uh, 13 years of failure with two colossal failures at going after the same 5,000 person giant factory sitting in the U.S. South, filled with racism beyond recognition, like the reason... Part of why I'm saying it, that narrative is wrong, it was not a 15-year fight to win, it goes right to the discussion we're having about Operation Dixie and Fast Fight, for whatever, there's a fight for 15, because you, if you understand the, the point of my chapter on Smithfield Foods is to say, my God, when someone with a brain and a power analysis, which Gene Bruskin, the, the, the third person sent in to do it, really had, they won because he understood how to let the workers lead, had to let them engage in what were a series of wildcat strikes, shutting the factory down that caused huge problems for the employer every time the workers did it, that involved the black clergy, that involved the Latino Catholics, who people barely even knew that we had an you know immigration happening in the U.S. South 10 years ago. That's a point I make in the chapter two. It was so new back then. Now it's not new. But like, you know, the whole point of that chapter was, no, it didn't take 15 years to win at the at a giant manufacturing plant deep in the Confederate Dixie flag region of our country. 
it actually took two and a half years when you applied a smart strategic approach to the campaign that involves some real organizing in addition to a sort of big comprehensive campaign. So that I just I think that these questions are frankly essential, including what you're raising about Operation Dixie, which is intriguing to me because um, I think understanding why it may or may not have failed and was it bad strategy is crucial. I think our movements don't fundamentally understand power and strategy right now. And it's a huge problem. Absolutely. That's why I love your work so much. I came across your Fight for 15 critique uh, before I came across the Operation Dixie rethink. And the two are, are so, uh, you know, I mean, it's, re- it's really important because, you know, you worry if this Fight for 15 thing fizzles, will that be taken as a lesson, right? Right. Uh, that people hold up for the next, God, 30 fucking years yeah. as to why, you know, well, you know, you just workers can't organize really those workers anymore because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. It's a really dangerous uh, historical, you know, false lesson uh, to have to learn. Yeah. It is, it is a really, really dangerous lesson. And I, um, I, I did. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I'm just trying, I'm just thinking back to another interview I did recently where, um, Sasha Lilly was like, um, saying that there's such a there's such an absence of writing about power and strategy that she and someone I didn't know and she's very smart in her own right but like I'm I am increasingly struck by it and I feel like I just want to keep writing about power and strategy like my next book well okay I might write one in between it now fast one but the 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 book project that I'm really focused on right now I think I'm just going to call the whole damn book power and strategy that's the title please do that's it I would love that because I mean, right right now we there is there is no uh, lack of descriptive analysis about uh, movements, about oppression, about you know mostly I said social movements, even the labor movement. There's a lot of description, but there is nothing that tells you uh, any sort of how to develop a strategic analysis, or sh- strategic orientation, and then how to develop power and win. Because the only way to win is to win. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So you have an interesting take on the decline of labor. I want to get to this really quickly. So most takes on neoliberalism talk about uh, mechanization, globalization, stagflation, and all these other types of uh, uh, historical mechanisms. And those are crucial aspects, and I think you would agree with that. But all too often, this kind of analysis leaves out entirely the conception of human agency, right? Who was doing what, when, how, and, and then what was the result? Um, so sure, we, we focus in on politicians like Reagan and Thatcher. You know, we might talk in academia, we might talk about Friedrich Hayek or whatever the hell he had to say about neoliberalism. Right. But we never ask those same questions about the labor movement itself. Who was doing what? What decisions were being made? So it's just interesting. Tell me a little bit more about your, de- your narrative of the decline of labor um, and how it doesn't the, – the commonly held uh, sort of conception doesn't talk, bother to talk about the, spe- the specificities of labor itself. Yeah. Well, I think – and I think um, I think it doesn't bother to talk about the specificities because I'm um, going back to that point I was making earlier. I just think that there is – there's a general cynicism um, about ordinary people, at least in the United States. And I'm spending enough time now in Canada and Europe and Australia and New Zealand and blah, blah, blah that – I'm almost I'm almost safe to begin to generalize it, except as a U.S. person from like an empire nation, I don't really like to generalize. So I'll I'll keep making my examples specific to the U.S., though I think we can probably extrapolate them. But I really think that there is you can see in the coverage of 
Trump voters in the media right now? What like what's the, what the, the the typical the you know the sort of stereotype of a Trump voter? Um, you can see the actual distaste that most um, even liberal elite folks have towards ordinary people. It's it astounds me every day of the week. But so I but I think if you extrapolate that, you know, versus Bannon and the hardcore right wing that are using Trump to whatever whatever, right? That's a that's a separate issue. But like the common stereotype. Um, which is sort of white, working class, rural, you know, people supporting Trump, which is not, by the way, how Trump won. Uh, set the record straight on not that. At all, but like, not at all. yeah, at all. But like, but that's but that's the narrative that's been constructed. And it's so uh, it, it, it adds layer upon layer of, of cynicism of the question of agency. So um, to get to your point, I mean, I think two things. One is I do go a little um, I go a little heavy, I think, on agency like I told, like, I, I think I'm accused oftentimes of just outright dismissing, you know, all these structural factors. And I want to say that I do it because there's so little attention to agency. I just feel like I have to bang the table of agency constantly and really loudly. So it bend the stick back in you, that direction a little more. Right? Yeah, but and and you 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 know, I think you said it right, which I appreciate. Which is that yes, of course, I think they're factors. It's just that if you're an organizer, there are two things that are true, which is really what I am fundamentally. And if you're an organizer. Um, our challenge is to get to a solution to the immediate problem. It's not to dwell for some yeah. freaking 40 freaking years about, but this boss is really tough. Huh. It seems like this boss has also got some investments in this other thing. And then maybe they're going to go, maybe in 20, maybe if the Affordable Care Act is replaced, it's going to put us in a difficult position in negotiations four years from now. I We don't give a shit. We're in a fight, yeah. right? How yeah, do you win? It's do so or die. It's like, you're up against the ropes, you know, you, you got to figure out which punches to throw in that particular yes. moment. Yes. I mean, organizing is about what I call in my first book, I call, um, because, because my mentors used to use that word, just like they used to say class novel versus class struggle. Like I talk about in raising expectations, I talked about the zig and the zag, right? right like zig yes. and zag is, that's yes. actually a real term in organizing. Like we're zigging and zagging today. We're doing something. And now the boss just did something. And we usually we anticipate what the boss is going to do, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes they got someone smart on the other side and they throw us something and we're not ready for it. So it's called the zig and the zag. Like you got to quickly regroup. You got to get with all the workers. You got to figure out, Hey, the boss just went that way. We thought they were going to go to the right. They went to the left. Or what do you know? I mean, right, left. But, you know, they went up, not down. And so quick, we got to reassess and get to where, you know, like that. that's what we do. So to me, that's a metaphor. Like in every fight I'm in, every live real action campaign I'm in, there's some, you know, I think we're generally smarter than the bosses are. That's why we keep winning. But, you know, once in a while, we got a creative union buster and we got to do a zig and a zag. Like, holy shit, we didn't expect them to do X, Y, and Z. So... And I talk about that a lot in Raising Expectations, right? There was like a moment in Nevada going up against this guy, Brent Yesen, who's an infamous scumbag union buster, you know, and um, and and we were getting ready for a huge strike. And uh, well, actually, we, we did get ahead of them. So it's not a good example because we did anticipate uh, that, that that if we at the last minute agreed to um, to not strike because the governor was going to ask us not to strike, would the company uh, lock us out? So it, in fact, right. in some ways, it's not a great example because we did anticipate that they were going to be as stupid as they were. But but they they had to zig and zag in that moment, right? Because we outthought them. But there are moments when we get outthought by a boss temporarily. And to me, globalization and trade agreements and robots and structural factors, they're all just a problem to get past. They're not something to make us sit on our ass and come up with excuses for how we're going to slit our throat as a working class a little bit less painfully every day. It's like, 
take, how do we actually look at the problem and then build a strategy to defeat it, whether that's go through it, go around it or crush it, right? I have three options as an organizer slash strategist and they're kind of it. So when I go, when I went into academia, and I just read ad nauseum about these constant problems in the literature of globalization and blah, 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 and automation. Give me a bucket. I'm staring at thousands of workers who have an immediate problem, which is that their boss is an asshole and they're trying to figure out how to win. So, you know, that's just that's that's what organizing is about. That's why I keep saying it, it, it's it's who's doing it. How are we thinking about it? When I when I when I sit with workers I'll give you an example from a campaign I was involved in last year in Philadelphia. Um, there was a moment, and I just finished writing about this. It'll come out some point soon, I hope, in an article. But there was a moment in the camp. So workers in one of the hospitals, Einstein Medical Center, they won an election last April, this time last year. Actually, right around this time last year, April 8th. Um, but they won uh, a National Labor Relations Board election, NLRB election, straight up old-fashioned, all that all that theoretical academic googly goggle that says we can't win NLRA elections in this country is also wrong. So it was a big old fight, an election, good organizers, great workers. The worker committee was amazing. They win against a pretty tough union buster. And within seven days, the boss files legal charges, objecting to the election and puts out a memo saying, you know, we understand that the vote was, you know, a little, you know, 140, 130 something people more voted yes than no. Um, but we're going to object to the election. We think it was undemocratic. We think the union broke a bunch of rules. We actually think the regional board broke the rules. And their message was, you'll never have a union. So fast forward. I mean, that was the message. And in this country, like in the Smithfield fight, when a moron, you know, hears that decree, they take yeah. a moron approach, like just doing lawsuits and litigation. Right. And we said, you know, I sat down with the workers and I said, look, here's the history from Smithfield on and before it and after it. If we just pursue this as a legal fight, you're never going to have a union, even though you just voted for one. So how about we learn a history lesson and we decide that the campaign is going to be to force the employer to withdraw their legal charges because that's the only way you're going to get a union. And, you know, this was like a there were many moments where I had to, like, look at hundreds of workers in day shift and night shift meetings and say to them, there is no roadmap. Right now, there is no roadmap. The roadmap says you'll never have a union because what the union buster is coaching your employer to do is to take this into a legal fight that will go on for a minimum of five years, a minimum. Bury All they have the to course. do is appeal it, right? This yeah. is a great case study. All the boss has to do, even if you keep winning, because the workers are like, well, but Jane, we didn't do what they said. I'm like, of course you didn't. But it's a legal strategy. And they're trying to lock us up in the courts. And every time our lawyers win, um, the boss will just automatically hit the appeal button and that can take five years. So, you know, that's the equivalent of like the academic saying, well, globalization is really a problem. I looked at hundreds of really smart workers who are nurses and technical workers in a hospital. And I said, we can either take the formal approach, in which case you're not going to get to the negotiating table and you're not going to have a union and none of the problems that you fought for the union for will be solved. If we take the approach that an academic would have taken, like, oh, let's have a good lawyer take the legal case. I said, or we can go into the unknown. You can continue to build power. We're going to pass an immediate um, structure test. You're going to have to do a, a hand-signed petition in your hospital that says, we first step, we demand the employer drop 
the legal charges and withdraw the legal charges and get to negotiations. And if you can show that a supermajority of you believe that that's the correct position, that your boss is lying and must drop the legal charges, that's the only way we're going to get out of it, not because our lawyer is smarter than their lawyer, and we start a big fight to force them to drop the legal charges, we got a hell of a chance of winning. That's how organizers get around a structural problem. And guess what? We did. And by July, we buckled the hospital and we got to the negotiations table. And the the lawyers in the world think it's a fascinating case because we actually forced an employer to literally withdraw their charges. Okay, that's (laughs) a real life example in one city of how an organizer approaches uh, what someone calls a structural problem versus how an organizer handles it, right? Like, okay, here's a barrier. It's called the law. These guys don't have to go to the bargaining table under U.S. law because they're contesting the election. What do we do? That's that's what organizers do. We get around the problem. That's when the shit hits the fan. What do you do? And it's funny. I mean, my own experience. Um, I, I love labor lawyers, and so I'm not. I'm not. Uh, uh, you know, just just taking shots for no reason. But Me it's just either. Kind of yeah, a, there are some really good ones. Some really good ones. Some yeah. really good ones. But it's it's kind of an occupational hazard of, of being a labor lawyer that it's like when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you're a yes. lawyer, everything looks like, a, you know, some kind of court lawsuit, countersuit action, right? Yes. And, and my, jeez, my, my, my experience in a strike and, and in my local and national is that too much of the policy and the strategy is driven by lawyers, Uh, And surprise, surprise, that strategy looks like a lot of fucking lawsuits. Uh, But then people like yourself and myself come along and we say, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Right. Uh, It's, you know, people almost look at you like, oh my God, what are you doing? This is, this can't be right. Of course you have the force of experience and, and uh, you know, and all the rest of it behind you and, and and you win and you showed them, Uh, you know, you can, you can overcome this, but, and you you do this by developing uh, what you call a power worker agency. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, there, there you go. Uh, leveraging worker agency by developing a power structure analysis. So you've already hinted around this a little bit, but I really want to end the, end the show with this Uh, because too often, I mean, we have a lot of people nowadays, uh, democratic socials of America, which sort of come from the port Huron statement in a a sort of (laughs) twisted sort of way. Uh, Democratic Socialists of America have you know twenty plus thousand members right now. Uh, socialist organizations are just bursting at the seams. Bernie Sanders has catalyzed a movement unseen uh, in recent memory. Uh, there are just people who are you know at the on the surface just rip roaring, ready to go to fight for socialism and fight for 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 workers' rights and things like that. And yet it doesn't really seem to be happening happening in any profound way. I think there's a there's a gap, and my podcast is trying to get at that gap. And you and it seems that people think that if they just sort of shout loud enough, if they make the right hashtags, if they feel hard enough, if they tweet enough, things will change. And I think your power structure analysis is the way that we need to go forward. So maybe explain that for us a little bit. Sure. Um, although it's a bit hard to explain, but um, A, again, I think it's a great, I think it's a great point and a great question. So um, part of my obsession and part of why Again, I uh, I didn't I I I want to be clear. Like I I don't think I invented any idea that I talk about. <laughs> so <laughs> I had really good mentors, right? Like that part of what human agency is is also about your mentors. And when I was working with those workers in Philadelphia, I had the same approach, which was like I'm just here to share some history and some experience and lessons about what I think is going to win. But you have to make this decision because, in fact you, the workers in that case, have to do a hell of a lot of work, right? And not leave it to the lawyer. So anyway, but like on power structure, I mean, I just, I feel like I, who I am now 
is the product of the mentors that either found me or I found. Um, mm. So that's an encouraging word to people listening to the podcast, like figure out the mentors you want and oh, yes. go get them, which oh, I yes. partly did, right? Because it's not in books. The people who know how to win are not writing books. And that's part of what makes me feel a little bit odd sometimes is I decided, shit, screw it. I'm just going to start writing because people who are doing organizing and strategy aren't writing enough. And that's part of the gap too, right? That's a gap in literature. I'm trying to fill in the gap that you're working on in the podcast. So that's good. But like, so very early on, not early, but very early on, I'd say I was 19 or 20. Um, when I began to do, well, 1989. Yeah, that's right. So when the walls, anyway, it's a weird story about how I first met him, but the person who most influenced my thinking on power is someone named Anthony Thigpen, who's a very good old colleague of mine, um, who I've known since, yeah, I was I'm late teens or something. And uh, we were on a delegation together that was sort of interrogating what had happened in the former Soviet Union. It was like a weird, some strange thing that I was a youth delegate on. They were all considerably older than me um, on the delegation. It was like another mentor moment there where I met some really interesting people. So one of them was this guy, Anthony Thigpen, who um, is probably... He wouldn't say this because it's who he is, but he's, you know, he's he's certainly very responsible for California being as progressive a state electorally and legislatively as it is right now, whether it's sanctuary cities or whatever's going on here, climate change. Like he's helped elect or unelect more people in the Los, greater Los Angeles area, which is the biggest part of the state than almost anyone. And he's just been doing it forever. And he doesn't bother to write or take credit or talk or do interviews or anything. He's just doing the work. So, but he taught me a method when I was very, very young that he actually created. And that's part of what I'm going to, I'm attacking in my either next or fourth book, either third or fourth, but, and I'm always touching on it because it's a method I use, but it's a method of, of really analyzing power. And it's, it's both not hard, um, but it also does require incredible discipline, right? To me, winning is about discipline in addition to other things because discipline really matters. So it's about having the discipline to do the kind of power structure research that needs to be done to then set up strategy correctly. And so what are the kind of things that we're doing when we're doing power structure analysis? We are, um, it's sort of, I say, we're using my academic language now, <laughs> which is not how I would have described it five years ago, but now I'm a little warped. Right, right. It's both qualitative and Ooh. quantitative, Ooh. <laughs> um, which I, right, which in the old days I would have said, here's what I, here's how I described power structure before I went, before I was spent a few years in the academy. I said, look, it takes an organizer type uh, and then it takes usually a guy, sorry, but then it usually takes like someone who likes to sit at the internet with a high speed connection and a lot of caffeine and, and dig into the stuff that the organizer type is handing them. So yeah, it's, yeah. It, it really is. It's a process of going out in any, in any given labor market, any given region. I like to think in labor market level, it's going out into a labor market. Like we just did it in Philadelphia and there were Canadians, by the way, who came down and were involved in it, um, helping out with it because they wanted to learn. So the method is quite specific. There's a series of steps we follow. Um, we go out, we, 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 the, the, the nexus of it, the heart of it is really in some ways that we, we go into a region and we take either a five or 10 year cut on recent victories. Let me just, I've never tried to do this. Let me try and do it really fast. We, we look at the, we look at like 
the biggest local issues, not national, biggest local issues that played out in a, in a labor market in the last five or 10 years. And then essentially we spend a couple of months, both in interviews, interviewing hundreds of people and then doing data research on the internet, um, all of which backs up sort of what we're hearing or, or challenges it, right? Confirms mm -hmm. or affirms both, right. um, either confirms or challenges what we think we're figuring out. But we essentially take the last five to 10 years worth of hottest issue in the region, not a left-wing issue, not a progressive issue, just the opening question is, what was the most highly debated thing that people voted yes or no on in this region? So if it was Toronto, like in the last five years in Toronto, what were the five most controversial issues in the city of Toronto? Again, doesn't have to be at all something that we think of. The problem is movement people go, oh, well, we led that fight for 15 and we didn't do that well. Now, I'm not talking about what we led. I'm just literally saying in a power structure analysis, what were the biggest controversial policy fights in the last five years in a given region, which is using Toronto for a minute here. And then once we have like 50 people give us the same five policy fights that were the most hotly debated, then you start to analyze who was on the winning side yeah. and who was on the losing side. And then you start to analyze how much in it were they like, were they, did they just sign on at the last minute to the winning side or were they like leading on the winning side and winning could have been terrible for the left, right? And we were defeated, whatever. But so there's literally a theory of how we do, that's part one of the research and part two that is so unbelievably critical um, and hardly anyone does this and it's really the big problem is, and I outline it in the very beginning of chapter one, uh, connected to Mills is what we do parallel to that, which is we start to systematically map and chart the community relationships and all the connections that the rank and file base of whatever the fight is has in that same labor market. And it's when you put the two pieces of information together, meaning who's really moving power in this community and how does the thousands of workers that are involved in this fight, what are the tentacles that we have from a bottom up, literally fully bottom up? How do we, how can we infiltrate and begin to shift and mess with the people controlling power in this region? So this is the, this is the challenge of a book that I need to write next, but it's like, there's really a method to it and right, right. it matters. It sounds to me like, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to give myself away really quickly. I, I probably have watched too many cop shows in my, in my past. <laughs> it sounds like when they're trying to catch the perp, right? So they're in this, you know, this invest very, very, you know, yes. romanticized version. They're smoking their cigarettes and, you know, we got to get this guy, you know, and yeah. they've got their chalkboard or their whiteboard and they're, yeah. they have pictures of the perps and they yeah. have the, you know, the little pieces of thread or, or whatever connecting yeah. the dots and, and they have their informants, you know, the inf yeah. oh, we have this informant on this guy. And so we can leverage this guy in this way. And it sounds to me like it's kind of that sort of method, but your informants are, are the members of the union. Right. And totally. those people can leverage uh, certain power players and certain other organizations and groups in the community in certain ways. And then those folks can leverage people. And I mean, it sounds to me like this is just all about leverage. And if you're not thinking about strategic and a strategic orientation, that deals with actually existing leverage points, then you're just doing it wrong <laughs> because you, are, you can, yeah. you can write you as many think right. pieces as you would, as you like, you can start as many hashtag campaigns as you like, but if you don't have these direct connection points, you're just, you're, you're missing it. Well, you are, I think, you know, I mean, look, we obviously totally agree on this point and I think that you're right. And I, I think it's a good way to close because here's the thing. It goes back to the fundamental agency question that you've asked me a couple of times. And it is my obsession, which is, 
the ordinary rank and file in every one of those scenarios, meaning just, you know, workers, right? We have to, we have to give some name to like ordinary people or rank and file or whatever it is, but like people, workers in this case, like they're the key to, un- to, to undoing the power structure as it currently exists. There is no other way to do it. So when people say, why are you obsessed with agency versus structure? It's like, I, I, I it's just this puzzle to me. Like, I, I think that if you if if listeners could see my face right now, it's contorted because it's like I, I don't even get the question. Like there would be no way in the city of Philadelphia that absent being in dialogue with thousands of workers last year, as we were figuring out the top down research, we were doing the bottom up research. It's one without the other doesn't work. So if you just ask the workers, who do you know, but you never do the research on the perps in, in your analogy, or, you know, I mean, like if you never do the research to, to narrow down, who are they to have the pictures, then you're lost. And by, by, but the serious thing is that the movement that the labor movement doesn't do is by contrast, they might hire a couple of wizards to figure out the shareholders or some little piece of some puzzle, oh, but God. it, but the power lies in the workers right. and the connections that they have to change the power structure. That's the Robbie Mook strategy. You develop the right algorithm and you can, you know, take the election or whatever. It's, Right. Really disgusting. Yeah. yeah. So it's all about the workers. Once again, it's just all about the workers. Yeah, it, it has to be all about the workers. That's the only way to do it. I, I would. Ho- I was hoping to talk about your dig into Saul Alinsky and your book. Folks will have to just buy the book and check that out for yourselves. Be uh, really like to have you back on the show to, to, to revisit some of these themes. You did some excellent work in the uh, healthcare sector in Philadelphia this past year. I'd like to talk to you about that some more. And it's my uh, understanding you're going to be writing about that soon. Yes, started to just began to. Yep. Excellent. I think that's a really instructive case, as you uh, mentioned off air, that that, you know, we can still win and people are are winning right now. Yeah, people are winning. And I should just say that, you know, the the union was PASNAP, the Pennsylvania Association of Staff Nurses and Allied Professionals. And they're a great independent union. And part of what I'm writing about is the growth now of independent unions in the U.S. who are sick and tired of the national leadership of the big, you know, unions and the big confederations messing everything up. And so part of what I'm going to talk about is this independent union that just won this incredible series of campaigns last year that I had the pleasure of spending the year with. But, but also like that, the idea that, again, it's an organizer approach to the world, the idea that, you know, let's say SEIU or any number of unions who are supposed to be doing healthcare aren't really doing it the right way. The fact that there are independent unions of workers growing up right now who are actually winning in some serious ways, that's an important structural, oh, should we say that? That's an important structural consideration, <laughs> that there are ways to get around, you know, sure. top-down, ho-hum, not strategic national unions. It's called start some new ones. Right. Anyway. It sounds to me like people only want to bring up structure to say why we can't do something. But yes. it's, it's, if you leverage the right agency, well, you can sort yeah. of reconfigure the structure to force yeah. the hand of the folks uh, who are exploiting and oppressing us. So this is a really instructive uh, tale. And uh, thanks so much for being on the show. I, ho- I hope to have you back on very soon to talk more about these things. Thanks, Adam. And that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I just want to fill you all in really quickly on my social media details. I really suck at doing this on a weekly basis. For those who are interested, you can find me on Twitter at Dead Pundits. Just one word or two words really put together at Dead Pundits. And you can search for me on Facebook. I've got a Facebook page. Just uh, search for Dead Pundit Society and you'll find it. 
That's uh, where you can find all of the information you want about the show. I post all of my episodes on a weekly basis there, so you can find them. Uh, in addition, subscribe on SoundCloud if you haven't already. I'm also on iTunes, so if you uh, have an Apple device or if you just prefer to use the, the iTunes app, yeah, find me. Search Dead Pundit Society. You'll find the page. Go ahead and give me a five-star rating because I know you want to. Otherwise, I don't really care. I'm not really sure what those ratings are good for anyway. But yeah, so uh, find me on social media. Say hello. Tell me how much of an asshole I am. Tell me how much you love the show, uh, whichever one you are so inclined. Thanks again to all my Patreon supporters. If you haven't supported the show and you want to, check me out on patreon.com slash deadpundits, and you can subscribe to the show. Uh, You can have access to some of the bonus footage uh, bonus content rather that I have there. So thanks again for everybody for tuning in. I've got a really great guest next week. Matt Bruenig is going to be on the show talking about his new model for a crowdfunded grassroots left wing think tank. It's a really exciting stuff. I think it holds a lot of promise for the future. So until then, dead pundit out. Oh, this new crazy mother.